Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A dream mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a dream mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner dream mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. I am a Dream Mason, a performance and mindfulness coach. I work with leaders, creators, and innovators, those brave enough to build their dreams. If you're a high performer looking for an edge with a desire to expand your leadership, generate more money, more time, and feel more fulfilled, working with me will support you in making that life a reality. Now, if you haven't already, please support me and this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. Follow me, Inspirational Alex, on Instagram, and please share this podcast with a friend. Welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova, and I'm really fortunate to have somebody who has traveled the journey that I'm on long before me and done really, really great things with podcasting, but also a lot of other things. Our guest today is Debbie Millman. Debbie, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to tell some people, you know, you've, as I was looking at what you've done, so let me actually share how I found out about you. I was sharing with a friend uh, about my podcast and he shared it with his mom. And then all of a sudden his mom listens to my podcast and she goes, you have to talk to this woman. And she sends me her name. And I'm like, I, I unfortunately, I didn't know. I wish I had known because when I started to look into what you've done and listen to your podcast, I was like, how did I not know? How have I not been listening to all the content you've put out into the world? But it's so cool to find out about you this way. And what the, some of the things I've learned are, first of all, your podcast has been around for about 13 years. It's called yeah, Design Matters. 14, 14 in February. And you were like one of the first podcasts. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Um, it is pretty cool. <laughs> it was so unanticipated <laughs> and unplanned and now and looking back so surreal. And you've won like all the awards. Oh, I don't know about that. I haven't, I, I've been nominated a lot. <laughs> I don't know that I've won a lot. <laughs> five million downloads or over five million probably now. It's and kind of cool. It's kind of crazy. And you've talked to, I mean, you've talked to so many people, but you've talked to people that, that I like really admire people that I would love to have on the podcast one day, people who I would just love to brush shoulders with walking across, you know, a beach or anything, but people like Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, these are names I know, you know, and, and my, I think my listeners know, and then tons of people that have accomplished huge things that I just, I'm not familiar with. Do you have like a favorite, like your favorite guest? No, that would be like having to ask somebody with a lot of children who's their favorite. <laughs> I mean, all the ones that you've mentioned are, are near and dear to my heart because they were really big people that agreed to come on this little show. Um, 
but I also, I, I do an annual episode with Stephen Heller, the design critic, and that's one of my favorite experiences every year. I love my episode with Chris Ware. I think that's one of my best. Um, I love my interviews with Chip Kidd. I've done a few with him. Um, Amanda Palmer is one of my favorites and my longest. I think that was, I think we talked for two and a half hours, but ultimately we put up about an hour and a half. So, so there's lots of them. That's awesome. I, and the thing that I think is even more is you've done all these other things, right? It's not like you just have this podcast. You've authored six books. Yes. And, and I think one of the coolest things I found when I was like digging in and trying to figure out who this woman was that I had to speak with was all the brands and logos you've designed. Things yes. that, like <laughs> these things appear all over our world and they're plastered up everywhere, but we have zero idea of like who's the creative mind behind them. Well, I was I'm one of them, not the only. I worked on most of the identity work that you're probably familiar with when I was uh, running Sterling Brands. And I was there for 20 years and worked on and helped develop Burger King and Tropicana and Hershey, the Hershey Bar and Twizzlers and Hagen dazs and on and on and on and on and on. Probably two or three hundred brands in in that time, maybe more. Yeah, I should I should actually sit down one day and count. And then you did like merchandising for Star Wars, also. Yeah, yeah. Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which was amazing. I got to go to Skywalker Ranch and hobnob with all of the. Um, life-size versions of the characters. Was there, so in this, in this arena of branding, was there like one project that stands out as it just connected with you as a person that you were like, when you got it, you're like, Oh, I'm so excited to, you know, create, create a brand or um, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, like visual. I mean, one of the defining moments in my life is working on the No More movement, which I did, I started working on that. I think it was back in 2012 or 2013. I was approached by one of my clients, who's now also a very, very good friend. Uh, she was then the global design director of Kleenex at Kimberly Clark. And Kimberly Clark had joined forces with Verizon and Avon and Viacom and an organization called the Joyful Heart Foundation and a number of other companies, all in an effort to work together to create a brand that would really be more of a movement to eradicate uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. And so I was asked by my client at Kimberly Clark if we would donate our services, branding and strategy to this effort. And I said, yes, absolutely. And that is creating the no more positioning and the mark is one of the biggest um, and most important pieces of business work that I've ever done. That then led to my working directly with the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is the organization that Mariska Hargitay started. She's the star of Law and Order SVU. And she has been doing that show now for 20 years. When she first started doing the show, she was struck by the number of letters she was getting by people that had uh, been impacted by domestic violence or sexual assault or child abuse. And she started a, a foundation as a result of, of receiving those letters. 
And that organization has been very involved in changing the narrative around these um, crimes in our culture. I think they set the stage for the Me Too movement. Mariska has been very involved in ending the rape kit backlog. Uh, she created a movie last year uh, that was that's on HBO that you could see on demand called I Am Evidence about the rape kit backlog. And so I've joined that board and have since become the chairman of the board. And and in many ways, this make, it helps me feel like my life makes sense doing this really important branding work that helps change attitudes and culture, especially, especially right now, which is a really difficult time in, in, on our little blue dot. Yeah. That's what I was thinking the whole time. This, as you were sharing was, wow, it's so relevant in the time we're living in. Yes. And it's, it's almost like, how do we, I was having a conversation with a client yesterday who was, who was sharing some, some, they wanted some support around some relationship things and they were talking about it, the things that are going on as if they were political, you know, like whether it was a a liberal or conservative thing. And we actually created the conversation that this isn't about what side of the fence you fall on. This is about human beings, right? This is about human beings being kind to each other and good to each other and taking care of each other. And yeah, it's, it, it get that gets somehow lost in the shuffle of politics. Right. Um, but thanks for sharing that. Um, sure. I'm present to the, uh, the, the pendulum that you've gotten to swing of like Hershey's to movements that actually impact and change people's lives in like a very profound way. Yes. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. I would almost say that that's probably something that everybody would want, right? To be able to do something that's fun, but then also take that same skill and then have it have an impact. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I've gotten extremely lucky with the types of projects and and the work that I've been able to do. And not that there's, not that there's anything at all wrong with, with working on logos for fast food companies and carbonated soft drinks and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, I've done a lot of that work and I'm really proud of that work. Um, we, My two partners and I sold Sterling Brands in 2008 and I continued on at Sterling for another eight years. Um, but now <laughs> in my sort of more mature years, I am not really interested in, in working on fast-moving consumer goods anymore. I'm really interested in working on mission and movements and and with brands that are really looking to better our culture and and create a better environment for for everyone that that lives here when you're doing that when you're working on a a project that's mission driven that's actually about you know changing with the directive is to change people's lives or change let's say the way things are going how do you merge, like, how does creativity and that play in, because there's obviously creativity in that. How do, how do they kind of merge together? Hmm. They're intertwined. I wouldn't say that they merge. They just are the left and right sides of the brain and it's all one brain. So I would say that you can't really have one work effectively without the other. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about like how maybe it's even maybe the question is really how do when you're doing something like this, it's I guess it's the same as anything else, but crafting the thing that lands and sticks, right? Like Me Too landed and stuck. And there's lots well, of it, it, it landed after 10 years. I mean, Tarana Burr created that 10 years ago, mm-hmm. a long time for it to stick, as you said. Sure. Um, and I think that you can never really predict when something will take hold of the zeitgeist or become the zeitgeist. Um, it's very hard to do market research on the validity of a belief. You know, Martin Luther King did not go around doing research on the I have a dream speech and asking people if it was um, going to stick. So it's really, really hard to know when something is going to resonate. What I would like to, to consider is that it might take people... A, a, t- a certain amount of time to catch up with the people that have these ideas in the first place, the more steadfast you are in that personal belief, the more likely it will take hold. Part of the issue we see in today's world is the speed in which we expect things to happen. You know, we live in what I, I used to call a 140 character culture. And now I call it 280 character culture because we expect things to be able to be communicated and shared instantly. And and I think anything worthwhile takes a long time. And sure, you could have those one-off viral campaigns, but they tend to be viral for very short periods of time. Um, Whereas something like Me Too was a slow build that I would predict will be here for, for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, as you, I was thinking about your talk as you were saying that, like when you said it, it, ha- it started ten years ago, and then now it's stuck. But the longevity of it, to your, you know, the longer it takes, the longer it lasts, which is something you've said. And I don't know that people think about that. When I heard that, it was like clunk. And because you know, I grew up. I'm 36. I grew up in a generation right at the beginning of a generation that's like, hey, we need it now. We need it fast. If it yeah. doesn't happen fast enough, we quit and find something else. Right, right, right. And and that steadfast belief in your mission is is one serious component in making it successful. How do you, what's the like advice you would give to people when they're in the midst of that journey, whether it be, you know, a, a, a dream that's just for them or a Me Too movement or anything, and they're in the kind of slosh in the middle where you kind of can't see the end, it feels hard, you have the debate. It, depends, of- it really depends on what your goal is. If your goal is global change and you believe in this with your whole heart, it's part of your DNA, you have no other choice but to do this, then it's you do it for as long as it takes. I had somebody ask me earlier today, when do you, when do you give up? And I'm like, when you want to, it's if you don't ever want to, you never give up. I mean, there are certain people that will continue to keep trying and keep working, keep doing. And if it means they make it later in life, they make it later in life. There are plenty of musicians and performers and artists and 
makers that work their whole lives before they get any recognition. So if you're doing it for recognition, then I think you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because you have no other choice but to do it, and this brings your whole life meaning and, and, and focus and purpose, then, then that's the reason to do something, but to do it, to, to, achieve a certain level of notoriety or acceptance or approval or affection. I mean, that's, that's when I think you run into trouble. Do you think that the, there's a difference between the people that give up and, and the people that don't based on like hum, innate human, you know, uh, intelligence or grit, or is it just kind of what, what I heard you saying is almost like it's about the cause, like what they're actually in it for is what would determine whether they give up or not. I think it depends on, again, your, your motivation and your, your capacity for rejection and failure. Now for me, I had, my, a lot of my early drive came from profound feelings of self-loathing. And so I was looking for these outside things to prove that I was worthy of living or that there was some value to my life. Um, the problem with, with doing that is that it's never enough. It's you, you never get to a place where that success or promotion or financial reward removes that self-loathing. It just doesn't work that way. It would be great if it did. Wouldn't it be great if it did? Um, And so, but what I found was that even when I was getting rejected and rejected and rejected, one of the things that I've discovered is that my longing for something more in my life was bigger than my shame. So the shame was there and it's still there, but my desire for something better is bigger. And I don't know that they necessarily are diametrically opposed. You can have one without the other. Um, But what I can say is that my desire for having a, happier, more content life has always been one of the driving factors of, of everything and anything I've ever, ever done. I've heard you talk a lot about um, the ability to keep going, even when you're not maybe winning or succeeding or the slow process of it. And a lot of that is what we would interpret as failure. You know, the, it, it's, it's arbitrary whether it is failure or it's just, but how, do you think that you can fall in love with that process? Like falling in love with failure? No, <laughs> not me personally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> some people might, some people might. I think there are a lot of people that like the uh, action of trying. No, when I fail or when I'm rejected, I get very despondent. I get really, really despondent and down and I have to go through that. I, you know, it metabolizes just like any, anything else, any other feeling doesn't always feel as all pervasive, but, but no, I, I'm not a, a gracious loser. 
<laughs> What's the um I'm thinking about cuz I I think that's a muscle. That ability to like what you just described, almost like how you said digest it. Like clearly you have learned how to digest it and then and then move forward anyway. Well, it's I think it comes with experiencing it a lot. You realize that it's mm-hmm. not going to last forever. You realize that it's not going to kill you. You realize that you can recover. And once you've done that enough times, then you don't feel as afraid of wallowing in that feeling or experiencing that feeling because you know it will dissipate over time. It still might sting, but it isn't something that will uh, just destroy you for for ever. Are there things that still scare you to fail at or to to try at? Yes. Absolutely. Like what? Like love. <laughs> love always scares me. Um, like having to face criticism that's scary when I put something new out. I mean, any any negative feedback hurts. I don't I don't take it um, with a grain of salt like some people do. I do read the reviews unlike some people. Um, so that that's always something that scares me. Uh, death scares me. Dying scares me. Losing people that I care about and love. I've had a really rough year. I'd lost both my dogs this year. Um, one in February and one in April. Uh, Duff was 18. He, she passed in February and Scruffy was 16 and a half and he passed in April. Um, that was, that's, that's, that's hard. Um, so that scares me. I just got two new cats yesterday day before yesterday. So I'm excited about that. So even though something scares me, doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to try. Yeah. So can I, can we, I want to ask you about the love piece because I think a lot of people can identify with that. Oh yeah. A lo- relationships have been my Achilles heel. I, I, I seem to be able to manage <laughs> to do a lot of things on my own really well. <laughs> well, it's it's so out of our control right like you can you can design 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 you can redo your podcast you can try again love is so you know there's another human being obviously right um that we can't change manipulate mold into whatever we want what's the uh what drives you there to keep kind of searching for you know whatever whatever it is you're looking for that's a good question. I, I've been thinking about that a lot. I think a lot of it is societal, you know, that, that that's something how expected of us. Um, not that I have a conventional life by any means, but <laughs> I think that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm for the first time in my life, very intentionally single. I had gone from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. And I was a serial monogamist and always felt, profound terror when I was on my own. And for the first time in my life, I don't feel that anymore. And that's a brand new thing for me. And in many ways, I feel like that's my biggest accomplishment because I never thought I would ever be able to get over that terror of, of aloneness. And now I, I 
I think I'm worried that I might have swung all the way over to the other side of the pendulum and may never, ever be able to be able to tolerate being with another person ever again. But I'm sure it'll net out to something more. Like swing back to the, yeah, balance out. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, can we talk about the, the journey of creating something worthwhile and like the length of the process. Um, and there was something in that, that you, I I was watching the video that you, I I don't know what the platform it was on. It almost looked like a Ted talk. Um, but something you said stood out so much to me, uh, which was the courage is more valuable than confidence. Uh, yes, that's Danny Shapiro. I was quoting her. Oh, okay. Yes. Can you, can you speak uh, well, to it a little? It like really yeah. rang my bell. Yeah, no, I, I, it rings, it rings everybody's bell. It's a bell ringer. Um, <laughs> I was interviewing Danny Shapiro for the podcast and after the podcast, so I, I, I taped the podcast live in front of um, an audience of my students. And after the taped show is over, I have my guest come out to meet with the students and the students are allowed to ask questions. And then there's a vibrant conversation that ensues. And after that, we started talking, Danny and I started talking about some of the things that the students had asked her about. And we started talking about confidence. And at that particular point in time, there were like three or four books that had come out back to back about confidence. And we were talking about it and, and Danny said, oh, I think confidence is overrated. And I was like, what? I've been searching for confidence my whole life. It's overrated. And she <laughs> said, yeah, she thought that most you know overly confident people were kind of obnoxious. And I agreed. And she said that what was more important than confidence was courage. Courage to take that first step without knowing what the ultimate result could be. And, and I thought a lot about it. I thought about it for about a, for about a year. And I, I came up with my own definition of, of confidence. And I think confidence is just the successful repetition of any endeavor. You know, when we first start to do almost anything, we're not good at it. You know, we're not good when we try to walk. We can't walk. You know, we stumble in, as babies. And for those of us that are able-bodied and are able to walk, it takes a while for us to be able to do it without falling flat on our face and crying. And same thing with driving a car. We learn how to drive a car and those first lessons are brutally scary. And, and then over the time, you know, we, we continue to practice and get our driver's license and then take our first drive around the town and then highway ride and so forth. Then we have car confidence. We get car confidence. We get um, walking confidence. And, and that happens after the successful repetition of, of those experiences. And so I think that is how you develop confidence. The first step you need, and people wait, they say, oh, I'm going to wait till I feel more confident. No, you have to take the step into the courage and then you develop the confidence. Is there a way to develop courage? You spoke to like how to develop, you would develop confidence by the repetition, but what about courage? Watch Wizard of Oz over and over. <laughs> I think courage over is over the of desperation. I mean, no, courage is fueled by desperation to make something different. Oh, interesting. Or desire, desire or desperation. <laughs> where, where do you? Where's courage been? Like the, um, 
where's courage really come into play for you in, in the work that you've done and the things you've created? You know, I don't see, you know, people have said, oh, you're so brave for saying that, or, oh, you, you know, and I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I, I think you're brave before you make, take the step. Your, I think a decision is only difficult before you make the decision. And it's the same thing with courage. You only need the courage right before you do it. When you're doing it, then you're in the process of doing it. So I don't really see very much of what I've done as courageous. I'm just glad I was able to do it. I don't view it that way, which is why when Danny talked about it in the way that she did, I sort of stood straight up and listened really carefully. I have a very hard time deconstructing my behavior in a way that makes me feel good about what I've done. <laughs> and I don't know that I, I even need to. Is it that you don't need to deconstruct it or is it more so shifting the relationship to it, like changing the way you, you look at yourself? So it could be empowering versus maybe sounding, sounding like disempowering. I don't see it as empowering or disempowering. I just don't see it as particularly valuable. So therefore mm -hmm. it doesn't occur to me. I, it wouldn't occur to me to view my behavior that way. I mean, I have to be honest, when I saw um, the testimony of, of, of Dr. Ford, I thought, wow, that, that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage mm -hmm. to do that. And her courage helped motivate my courage in a way that it wouldn't have before. So courage is like, can be, could be considered contagious. Yes. I think that that is the power that we're seeing in the Me Too movement. I love that's, I've never thought about courage as contagious, but as, a, as it, it absolutely, whereas co confidence is absolutely not contagious. No. Like you might, yeah, I might follow you because you're confident, but I, it's kind of all based on you. You take you away and all of a sudden I'm back to who I was. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you say, you know, this happened to me and then that gives somebody the, the courage to say, me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what builds a movement. Yeah. I want to talk about dreams for a second, not dreams like in a magical way, but um, dreams as in goals. What were you, when you started at the beginning of your career, and you, you started moving into, you know, branding merchants. What were your dreams then? I wanted to be self-sufficient. I wanted to be able to take care of myself and not have to rely on anybody so that I could feel safe. Mm. How and did, I wanted, and I wanted to do something. I wanted to live in Manhattan. I wanted mm. to live a creative life. So you kind of had the, the, the feeling behind and then you added the other components. And then how did it become, uh, like, how did you be, I, I wrote down on, when I was like going through your stuff watching, I wrote down, how do you become the Michael Jordan of like branding? 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's probably ever called you that. Um, <laughs> That's like one of the biggest compliments of my life. Thank you. If, if indeed you were referring to me, that's amazing. Yeah, no, yeah absolutely. I mean, I wrote down it's How on do you my become? Papers. Well, you know, when I first started, I wrote design. pardon? I wrote the Michael Jordan of design. Oh, not design. No, that's Paula Cher. Um, <laughs> so, uh, for, I mean, I, I started doing this work. There was a lot of, um, vitriol around doing branding when I was doing, it was sort of seen as the devil's work. I was actually called a she devil online in um, a blog called speak up back in 2003 for doing the work that I did. Um, but I don't really see it as, as a commercial, tool or a capitalist tool. I see it as a humanist tool and it's about creating meaning. And we agree that we, we create, we manufacture meaning about a symbol or a mark or a pair of sneakers or a bag of potato chips. And then we all agree or disagree on that meaning, but that meaning is something that becomes part of our way of understanding the world. So we created a crucifix that stood for something, and then we agree that that crucifix stands for something. Whether or not we agree with what the crucifix means to our lives is different than our not agreeing that this means that. So we might not necessarily believe in Catholicism, or in Jesus Christ. But we all agree that that symbol means that thing. Isn't that amazing that humans do this? Yeah. Well, it's 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 kind of the same as we like we need to put people in like boxes to help our minds be organized. I just was um was just watching something that had this comment that like in America we're the only culture that does that hyphenates things. You know, like we hyphenate different groups. And I was talking to a lot of people about this. Like, that's the same thing, right? A brand and a hyphen, it helps us identify and connect to things. And I thought this is totally a segue, but I just think it's so interesting. And I I think we were a a country that when that started, it was an empowered thing, right? I was here and I was sharing where I was from. And that's why my hyphen would be a good thing. Like if I were Italian-American or Polish-American, I got to keep my heritage and this new thing. And that became, and now we almost use it as a way to, to separate. Segregate, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was the thing that was empowered became disempowered. And I kind of hear that in the branding of this, it can be this really empowering thing that we connect to, that we rally around, that we get excited around, or it could become something that we're like blinded to and suddenly just fall in line behind, depending on how we we hold it. So, so I'm really fascinated, sort of endlessly fascinated by how we manufacture meaning. And that's really what I think branding is deliberate differentiation through manufactured meaning. Um, and that could be for a person, it could be for a football team, it could be for a running shoe, it could be for a planet, it could be for a religion. It's so, how we understand how we make sense of different things. We create meaning and names around and significance around objects and people and things. Could we do this 
like, could this be applied to us as individuals? Could we take like that, what you do with a product and give it meaning and then, and then essentially put it in a way where people then subscribe to that meaning and it creates something. Could yeah, we actually- I, mean, I, I don't really, I don't really um, like to think of people as brands because brands um, don't have souls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and as a person, you want a soul and you want mm-hmm. to be able to have moods and you want to be able to experiment and do different things that might not work because that's how you learn about what can work. And, and those are, those all fly in the face of sort of brand standards. That's so interesting. Cause the, cause the world we're in now, people are such our brands, right? Right. Like, especially with social media we, we are branding ourselves as human beings and then we are essentially locking ourselves in that, that branded box. Right, but the problem with doing something like that is look, take somebody like Elon Musk. You know, Elon Musk is a person. And mm-hmm. he, <laughs> Wait, he is? In different moods, but he's a person. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, his behavior might impact his brand because his brand is fixed and a person isn't. And, and that's, that's what gets personal branding that's what, that's what gets people into trouble when they see themselves as brands or when they allow themselves to be seen as brands because you want to be able to evolve and contradict yourself. Contradiction is one of the most beautiful things about human beings. And, and you don't want contradictions in brands. That's so interesting. Be, you want to be able to rely on a brand delivering something specific. Whereas with people... You know, you want to be, you, you like being surprised. That's Brand so interesting. So I'm, I love that you just said all that and put that because it's so, especially because of social media and oh. the way marketing is happening now. I mean, look, even this, the Dream Mason podcast, you know, I show up to networking groups and people are like, oh, here's the Dream Mason. And I'm like, I'm not, the, it's, it, that's the, but it, yeah. and I'm a, I'm a small creation and building this thing, but there's people so much larger than me that we're trapped in a box. And it almost explains why when somebody steps out of it, we freak out. It's like, we don't know how to be with them not being the brand. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The biggest issue I have with my design matters brand is that it's not about design anymore. I've had to Mm re-engineer it to be able to make sense to people. Oh, well, it's about design. I'm like, actually it started as a show about design. Designers talking about design, very inside baseball. Thank you very much. Now it's about <laughs> what, I've, what I've been able to engineer or re-engineer is the notion that it's about how incredibly creative people design the arc of their lives. But that's a mouthful and a little bit eye roll inducing. Um, but I have to try to make sense of what it is. And I, I have a lot of Concern that the name holds holds people back maybe from being able to want to listen to it because it's like, oh, I'm not a designer. Or I don't want to learn about design. It's not about design at all anymore, actually. So with with what you just opened up, like the, what the show has become about, I find so many people, and, and I'm sure you've had this question before. I just, it's the thing that I run up against all the time with clients, with people I run into, where people tell me they are not creative. And I kind of laugh because I always joke like, hey, when we were in kindergarten, there wasn't one little kindergartner going, no, I'm not going to finger paint. I'm not creative. That just wasn't a thing. So somewhere along the line, that got implanted into us. 
have you learned anything about reigniting that create that creative spirit inside of us? Um, no, but I, I, I want to, I, I, it's a very interesting, really interesting question. Um, I have an, an 11 year old nephew and one of my dear friends has an 11 year old son. And we were talking about them. Um, they're very similar. They're both kind of nerdy comics Lego boys. They're not uh, sports oriented and they're both very sensitive. And um, we both had an incidence recently where we witnessed their crying about something that went wrong. And it, it occurred to me, I'm like, wow, when do boys stop crying when, when something bad happens? Like right now they both cried at something that happened that hurt them, disappointed them. They were surprised by in a way that wasn't good and they were free to cry instantly and they were comforted instantly by, by their moms. When, when does that happen and why, when does that socialization begin? And I would guess that it might be the same thing with creativity. When do we feel like we can't be creative anymore or that there's a standard of creativity that we either have or don't have. And if we don't have it, then we can't be creative. I don't know the answer to that, but I would really like to. I love your example too. I I relearned how to cry this past February. And it was well, good and I'm sorry both. <laughs> it was the like I would cry at maybe a funeral or something like that, but that was about it. And relearning, I remember I sat down and went, what's wrong? Like, what's wrong? Why is this happening? I don't want to feel like this. And to your point, the socialization, it had just wiped it away. Like I just, right. we stop. we don't know how anymore. It's just something that's unpracticed. Yeah. And it, and it sucks because it's, it's so natural. We don't right. get to just not go to the bathroom because we don't feel like it anymore. Exactly. Because, exactly. Yeah. And I was so glad to, to know that they could both still do that. You know, mm-hmm. even though I don't want them to cry, but the ability to be able to express themselves in that way, I think not being able to cry creates rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's something anger. missing. Or, or I mean, I think lack really of under underneath all anger is is sadness. Sadness. Yeah. And I think if you can't if you can't let some feelings out, you're kind of clogging up the pipe where other feelings don't get to come out. Yeah. What about um what about the it might fall into the same box, the ability to actually have dreams. The actually ability to actually think something up or have a vision for something you want in the future and then actually go after it. Do you think there's something that is that, is that like um, something that as a society we, we squash down to, is it something that we can like reignite? Hmm. They're asking me a lot of questions that I don't feel particularly qualified to answer. So I'm only going to be answering. You're you're totally qualified to answer. I'm not a psychologist and I don't know how the brain works in that way. I think it really depends on the level of optimism you have, the level of hope you have, the level of um, permission you give yourself to evolve. Nice. Yeah, that's actually, that's what I love about asking people like you questions like this is, is it's actually, you get a real answer. You get a real human answer from like you, I think 
in your podcast and the work you do, I mean, even as you have students, you are, you are experiencing human beings all the time over and over again. And there's value in that, whether you have letters after your name, you know, and you're a scientist or not. Well, I think that with certain behavioral motivations, there are real, there's a real, there are real theories about these types of things, I would imagine. And I, and I wouldn't want to in any way mislead someone in their own search. Sure. Um, so I'm going to, I want to come back to something and I don't know if this is true. I'm going to kind of lighten this up really quick. <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but you're going to tell me because it was the most, I thought it was the most interesting thing that I found about you that I was like this, this just doesn't, based on watching videos and hearing your podcast, I was like, this isn't true. So did you really have a hand and like were a person behind creating the world's first hip hop radio station? <laughs> I, I was involved in the identity and, and the positioning. Yes, I was. Back in the early 90s, I worked with Judy Ellis and Rocco Macri and Johan Vipper to, to create the, um, <laughs> the visual identity and positioning of Hot 97 from a dance music radio station to the world's first hip hop station. That's so awesome. I read that. And I, I mean, I grew up in, you grew up in New York. I grew yes. up in LA and I, as far back as I remember, there was a hip hop station, but when I read that, I was like, maybe there wasn't, I don't, you know, for, well, I would have been 19, I think it was 1993. I believe it was right. 93 or 94. I don't remember exactly. But so I was 11. I probably wasn't listening to hip hop quite yet. Maybe in a, a year or two after, which I'm right. sure once that. Well, you could have been listening to it, but just not on the radio. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. That's awesome. Are there any other completely, like that one popped out as like this, is this really real or is this a random, do you have any other um, things that you worked on or helped create or that you're just like, this seems so outside of the box for who you are, the other things you've done that it's kind of fun to share? No, <laughs> right. I don't yes. think so. Oh, I, I worked, I worked at, um, I worked at a cable magazine. That was my first job out of school. So that back when cable was sort of a big thing. And I worked with a uh, music promoter called Ron Delsner. So I did a lot of work in concert promotion. I mean, these are, these are jobs that, meant a lot to me when I was, when I was doing them, I wasn't known for any of them, but those were things that definitely helped form me. Nice. I want to ask you some quick, like rapid fire questions. Um, Is there a brand that if you just had, if I just gave you a block of free time that you could use and there was like a brand that you would just have a lot of fun, like recreating or redesigning, or one brand that you would say, oh, I would love to play with that. So any brand in the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, anything you want. I'd like to, some, my students did some work in on their thesis uh, the la- last year on disability and repositioning how we view disability in our culture. Mm-hmm. And that would be like, that would be something I'd like to continue to work on. Nice. 
What's the, um, is there a person that if you could kind of support them in a movement that they are up to something outside of something you've already done, um, and you could help them better brand their, their movement, the, the, maybe it's a product that would really like help society outside of you just shared disability. Is there something else? Um, equal pay for equal job. Is there something you would do with it that you're like, oh, this is how I would brand it? Like, I think I would work to create more clarity of, about why there isn't equality in, in the way that we're paid and just some of the messaging and how it could be communicated in a way that would allow for deep understanding of the issues. A lot of, I know a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs. If you were giving like a tip to entrepreneurs about, Hey, this is, there's a quick one-off of how to better, you know, brand or market what you're doing. Is there something like that you would give them? Um, I would ask two questions. Why should I care about what you're doing or making? And then the other would be in terms of what you're communicating, why is this important for me to know? Are you talking internally to yourself or externally to your audience? If you're talking internally to yourself, nobody's going to care. If you're talking externally to your audience, why should they care? That's great. Thanks for that. And then last one, if there, is there a, a product, a movement, anything that does not exist anymore? that if you had had a hand in it, it would still be around and be successful? Or if you had been, you know, your team? Occupy. I wish that was still as vibrant as it was. It sounds like, I'm like, it sounds familiar. Occupy was... Occupy Wall Street, remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then it was the Occupy different things, yeah. Yeah, and then it went away. It was was here for a moment and went away really quick. Thanks. Thank you so much. I feel when, when you responded and then I started doing research, I was, I'll tell, be honest. I was like, Oh my God, I'm so out of my league. Oh, this stop. Woman, you did a great woman, job. Really this woman great is job. brilliant. And, and you've really, you've done so much cool things in this space, but also in so many other spaces. Thank and you. I, the thing that I'm really present to is just the heart. Like your heart is so in, in a good and powerful place. Like kindness, love, you really want to make a difference regardless of whether it's with people or brands. So thanks for being that person. My pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Kim, is there the best ways for people to, you know, follow you, you know, if they want to learn more about you, what are the best ways for them to, to do that? Um, at Debbie Millman on Twitter and Instagram and design matters or Debbie Millman on Facebook and debbiemillman.com for the podcast and everything else. Awesome. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for a great conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dream Mason Podcast. Please subscribe to the Dream Mason Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with a friend and give us a review on iTunes. I am grateful to have had you here. If you want more, you can follow or reach out to me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex or at thedreammason.com or email me at 
alex at thedreammason.com. And remember, you are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves. Just can't stand the sun. Just can't fall.